Hello, and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we dive deep into Wabo's most inhuman work, five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we're here to talk about Execution 13.2, which begins with Blake and Evan basically debriefing on this little fight they just had with this um, knight in shining armor. And uh, yeah, they're just kind of debriefing, figuring out, is Blake about to die? You know, all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very quickly established that Blake just isn't dying. Um, and, I, I mean, I guess even with everything going on, I still thought getting a massive hole through the middle of your, like, you know, sternum would uh, be kind of lethal. Uh, mm. But it's not. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's just sort of really highlighting how not human Blake is right now. Uh, I think one of the big things this chapter is doing is sort of showing us how Blake is finally starting to actually grapple with uh his situation here and uh you know we're opening that with this idea that he's kind of at the moment he's so inhuman that having a giant lance wound through his <laughs> middle is just kind of an inconvenience yeah yeah it, it doesn't even seem to phase him huh the fact that his heart was literally stabbed um yeah yeah I, I, evan comes out of the gate with a hilarious quote where he says Except you stabbed it, so that's, I don't know, it's like someone goes in for a fist bump and you shake it instead, but way, way worse. Which is such a great <laughs> line. Um, Evan, best yeah. character in the story, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we'll have a lot more to say on Evan but uh, throughout this chapter, but he's definitely uh, in top form this chapter as well, like just with his kind of charming, innocent logic that he throws at people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and there's this other great moment with Evan where Blake doesn't know where he is, and he looks, and Evan is, like, standing inside his, inside his body, just chilling inside him, like one of his, um, spirit birds, and, uh, <laughs> so Blake basically just got stabbed in the heart, and Evan goes in to, like, fill up the hole, like, <laughs> I absolutely love that, like, it's basically yeah. explicitly saying, Evan is the heart of this, <laughs> Yeah, I I love this. I hadn't thought of that. I just sort of took it for the hilarious moment it is where Blake loses Evan, and it's like, oh, he's inside the hole that I got stabbed with. Um, but you're right, it works so well as this sort of embodiment of how Evan is just filling in the gaps that of what Blake is missing right now. Yeah, filling in the gaps in Blake's humanity specifically, right? Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's hilarious. Um, so to to get off the Evan hype train for a moment here. Um, and get on the Evan concern train. <laughs> um, he he thought that Blake had actually attacked Alistair and was like, didn't really intervene, seemed pretty cool with it. This chapter, I think, is really showing us um, just how much Evan is willing to put up with from Blake, how much uh, evilness. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy what he sticks by with this chapter and how little he kind of calls Blake out on what has happened so far. Like, he, yeah. he mentions some bits, but he seems so, like, unsure in general. Like, his general yeah. uh, policy whenever Blake is like, what do you think I should do? Uh, Evan's like, I don't know, let's ask somebody even more better. Um, yeah. And it's... Yeah, I mean, it's just, as much as Blake is sort of going through a crisis this chapter of trying to figure out what what his plan is now, uh, Evan seems to kind of be going through the same thing, but I don't, we don't know, we don't have enough context about what he's going through to, to know exactly what's happening inside his head. I'm just concerned. I mean, there's, you know, 
we as it's brought up in this chapter he has bits of the abyss in him that's probably not good that's probably not helping yeah um, this chapter kind of explicitly calls attention to that and and maybe mm. that's what it's starting to hint at is like this is the chapter where i was kind of like okay evan really should be doing something about this and he's just not and the only other thing we get about it is that he's got some abyss parts in him so maybe that's the connection we're meant to draw yeah i mean it definitely seems like a connection that's left open for us to draw um the other thing is we've had a number of hints uh throughout the story recently about how evan and blake still have something between them yeah um and so you know maybe that well that's probably not a good thing at the moment either if that's the case like there could be some transferal of bad things either way taking place like you know blake could be draining evan of humanity or blake yeah. could be feeding evan a beer sweet either either way is awful um yeah yeah it, it doesn't seem good for evan at this point right um no no Whatever the cause is, the effect seems to be that Evan is less sure of what monsters look like, which is not great. Um, yeah. So Blake uh, basically sees the Bahams fighting off some others and has this brief moment of like, oh, should I help them? No, nah, I better not. That would be too complicated. But should I attack them? <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he actually yeah. seriously considers joining the others team here, which is like, weird. Yeah, although is it, I mean, you know, he does bring up the point he was trying to kill these people a while ago, so, like, it, it, it all, for me, is this crisis that he's going through of, like, at the end of last arc, he was kind of reduced to just this violent idea of, I'm going to kill all the monsters and everyone who's done bad things is, is a yeah. monster, and the events of the last chapter in a bit have kind of forced him to take a step back and and sort of reevaluate how easily he was just letting himself label everyone as monsters, and now he's just kind of a a mess. Like he doesn't quite know exactly what his plan is because he managed to convince himself that an appropriate plan was just kill all the things. Yeah, and now he can't do that. Now he's just kind of like, what the fuck am I gonna do with myself? Yeah, he really seems lost, doesn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. He and it sends him down this train of thought of thinking, okay. Shouldn't I'm not going to attack the Bahams, I'm not going to attack these people, I'm not going to attack those people. And he eventually realises the real enemy is the system. Um, <laughs> he kind of re-emphasises to himself how how gargantuan of a task breaking the wheel actually is. Yeah, I, I mean, he's obviously still on this train of thought, which I, I like because I like that general goal. Um, but he's starting to realise that he's fighting against all of reality if he's trying to go ahead with this. It's it's always going to be really hard to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, he's, he's always been on board with it, but now he, he kind of actively has the thought that reality itself is hell bent on maintaining the current system. So this is more of a, it's not just taking down Jacob's bell. It's fighting against what the universe. Yeah. And I mean, his plan kind of morphs as he starts to realize this from, um, well, it, it morphs into just sort of uh, apparently causing as much chaos as they can as quickly as possible to make things unstable, which will hopefully put him in a better position to do stuff. Yeah, um, and he starts kind of rationalising what Molly has been doing as well as part of this. Like, Molly hasn't been doing anything horrifying now in his mind. She's kind of created an opening, um, which feels a little... It feels a little bit like he's... He's coming on side to Molly, and I don't know if I'm fully willing to ascribe that to him just being a bit more heartless, or whether he's actually still a bit of a residual possessed. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess he, now that he's pivoting to this mode of causing instability in order to be able to take advantage of it, which, you know, I I think just harkens back to what, uh, Granny Rose was saying in 12.x, um, you know, Molly is obviously pretty good fucking source of instability these days, so, uh, she's an obvious thing to, to sort of team up with. Mm, yeah. Um, and we'll see how that goes in a bit. Yeah. Um, Blake sees a, a relative of his on the boogeyman side, not on the Thorburn side. Um, <laughs> and this uh, boogeyman is is basically actively collecting souls for the abyss, which is great. Um, <laughs> it's dragging along a Duchamp by this metal, you know, roadhog hook in her ankle. And it's talking about how it's going to collect nine more. Uh, yeah, this is... Um... <laughs> it's this thing's so unabashedly evil like it's such an <laughs> over the top like all the alarm bells that could possibly be set off are set off uh yeah. it really makes the point that uh that evan is about to bring up to blake very apparent i mean it's got it's dragging an old woman by a hook in her calf like come yeah. on blake yeah it's clearly uh hard to rationalize how it's actually the goody in this situation <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's such a creepy monster though. I'm kind of curious about who's it, who it belongs to, or if it's just a kind of a free agent. I would, I would kind of guess based on just how ridiculously evil it is that it's one of Johannes's that's just kind of living in his domain. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. That's probably the safe bet. Although the thing with the Duchamp, uh, like Alliance is that there's such a variety of types of practices they bring. That's true. You can't kind of. I don't think you can rule the Duchamps out of having a hand in anything at this point. Yeah, they could have a uh, yeah someone using boogeymen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they had a, a necromancer. I mean, this thing's horrible, but uh, the necromancer also didn't seem great. So you know, there's no yeah. They don't. They don't really seem apart from diabolism. There doesn't really seem to be a line they're not willing to cross as a family. Yeah, which is um, I don't know, a bit of a arbitrary line. I think like, what's the distinction between necromancy being a scourge and being a diabolist? They all seem basically pure evil, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I I would tend to agree. I don't see it as being a huge difference. The, the people in this world definitely seem to draw a line on diabolism. Oh, yeah, being worse. demons are so much worse because they actually are like actively making things worse for everybody, which I get, but feels a bit of a nitpick. Yeah. I I agree. I, I I don't I don't think people who are like scourges or necromancers should really be heading up holding up their heads that much higher. <laughs> yeah, I may be a scourge, but at least I'm not a diabolist. Yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. So so Blake and Evan talk more about you know this promise of uh, Blake's to to kill the monsters, and whether Blake is living up to it or not. And and they kind of have this conversation about whether they should save this woman. And they talk for long enough that they just miss their chance, basically. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is a sort of uh, another thing where really what we're diving into here is how lost Blake is right now. Yeah. Um, I think the most interesting thought he has in this section is this idea of he doesn't even trust himself to fight bad things because he's worried he's going to start to doubt how bad they actually are which Mm. is just a ridiculous thought to have when you're faced with this thing um but then also he can't trust himself around the good people and and i think what he's kind of thinking of here is the cabal um because he also doesn't necessarily trust himself to be good enough so it's like he's kind of he's not evil enough to be as evil as he wants he's not good enough to be like good that he so good that he can trust himself so he's just stuck in the middle and he doesn't know what to do with himself and it, it, that is, i mean it's that very uncharacteristic 
sort of paralysis that it leads to. You know, this is very unblake to kind of stand there trying to figure out what to do and not yeah. doing anything. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's perfect because it's not that he actively decides to fight it and fails, and it's not that he actively decides not to do it. It's that he just doesn't decide. <laughs> like yeah. he's so stuck in the middle that he can't even make a decision on this. And he has this thought of basically the way it ends is him going, "Well, it would be too awkward for me to run after them and save her now, so I guess that's <laughs> it." Which is like such a cop out by him. I absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's so interesting now that he's sort of finally starting to, I guess, have these two sides of him, the Abyss side and the old human Blake side kind of actually seemingly waging a war within him as opposed to, uh, one side just kind of catapulting ahead because the other one doesn't realize that there's anything going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad that Evan is at least making him aware of this enough that he can start confronting it, right? Because it has just been quietly happening so far yeah i mean evan just spends most of the most of this section of the chapter being like yeah but that's a giant monster with chains that's like killing people uh and and kind of trying to nudge blake in the right direction it's so clearly evil (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so uh, interestingly though evan does nudge him towards this but evan never comes down and says like blake basically says evan make this decision i can't and evan kind of doesn't feel like he can either like mm. he doesn't come down firm like i don't know how how much has evan been corrupted that he can't recognize enough that this is a monster yeah well it, it kind of goes like we've talked so much about how lost blake is but we you know we're also touching on the fact that it seems like evan is maybe in a similar boat which is why i wonder yeah. if if this connection that maybe still exists between them is is a factor um because like evan has just seemingly gone along with all this stuff and maybe you know Maybe this is optimistic, but this sort of thing might be the kind of kick in the pants Blake needs to sort of realize yeah. how bad things get. If he finds out he's been influencing Evan and then realizes kind of how un-Evan Evan has maybe been being yeah. uh, or been acting, this yeah. this could really be a wake-up call for him. Yeah, Evan might be the, the chance for him to you know reflect on, on how bad he has gotten, uh, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, so basically, Blake realizes that ev- even with Evan... Uh, he doesn't have enough help. He doesn't have enough oversight for him to know what to do. And he doesn't have enough firepower to do much. And so he kind of runs through the list of people that could uh, help him. And he figures out that his co- closest remaining ally is Molly's ghost. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't have even put Molly on the list. I, I didn't I didn't quite appreciate the level of... Uh... Uh, calm sentience that she ends up having um, mm-hmm. so i mean it's it's kind of a good call by Blake. no yeah it was the right move i guess i mean oh wait everyone else on the list is right it is worse except maybe the cabal i think there's an argument to be have there but blake kind of just shuts it down which is probably fair mm. um, um, but anyway so he yeah he summons molly because blake doesn't do things in half measures <laughs> yeah can we touch on the fact that he doesn't really consider his cabal that much right like he runs through the behames duchamps johannes rules them out fair enough uh he thinks of the thorburns but kind of feels like that would be going down the garden path of awakening them a bit too much and he thinks about briar girl and um and crone mara but he never really thinks about the cabal or or uh or rose um but rose i kind of get i i think I'm surprised that he doesn't go back to the Cabal. 
Yeah, well, I think he does. Does he? Not, he, he definitely touches on the idea of the the rest of his family, like Peter yes, and stuff. The Thorbans. and he's like, and he's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um. Then yeah, the Cabal. I think it comes back to the fact he has shut down that idea twice already in this chapter, yeah. uh, separately. And like, I I believe we're we're sort of seeing here what Rose was talking about, where he just doesn't trust himself to go back to them. I think he phrases it as I don't want to go or I don't want to to think about them. Mm. Uh, which is just yeah, I I just think he hasn't he's not quite ready to confront them, which this would obviously involve. Yeah, um, I don't then, know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Rose is probably a good. Like I, I don't know. Well, Rose no, is I the think person Rose... that he should go to, right? No, because uh, only she's not with Alistair. I mean, the problem is she's too tied with Alistair, and Alistair's now yeah, like on Team Kill Blake. So well, he I, I kind of know. is. I don't know. I feel like if he can just kind of uh, do a quick, "Hey, Rose, come in this alley and let's chat." <laughs> I, I feel like it would work out okay. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Well, I, I guess I think part of the reason he made that deal last time was because he was under duress yeah um he <laughs> he didn't want to make that deal but he had a lance to his throat now he's kind of away and he's kind of like oh you know maybe i'll just not attack her or something i guess yeah um which you know she pointed out last chapter um he may get twisted around till he thinks it's the right thing to do but yeah um i don't know i, I don't know if i agree that rose is necessarily a safe option i think yeah you you could be right because the whole thing was balance, and I mean, you know, Blake got stabbed a couple of times. That's even things out, right? Yeah, it's all even Stevens now. Um, but yeah, so he summons Molly, uh, and he's <laughs> there's this line he says to her, which I think is hilarious. He basically says, "Don't hold on to your grudge against the Behames. Think, Molly. Don't just ride on instinct." Um, Blake, <laughs> when did you learn this lesson? How, and how did this uh, somehow get through to you at some point? This is the most un-Blake thing I've ever said. Like, more than anything else, this convinces me that there's actually no Blake left in there. <laughs> yeah, talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is a very hypocritical statement uh, for Blake Thorburn to have made. Uh, I'm interested to see. I mean, I guess he did sort of overcome a lot of it last chapter when he got ready to make the agreement with them, so... Yeah, we'll see. Because you know, at the same time, he's making an agreement with Rose, which you know, talk about grudges. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there's a lot of interesting sort of bits in this conversation. Is he kind of tries to talk Molly into into you know uh, their super team up, uh, <laughs> team Dead Thorburn is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. The only thing, the only thing worse than a living Thorburn air is apparently one that's already been killed. Um, yeah, man, but, the Thorburn has really come back with a vengeance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The worst thing you can do is actually kill a Thorburn air. That's the that's the real lesson of this book. Just yeah. just leave him be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we learn a lot about Molly as well, like how um, like omniscient she kind of is. Yeah, in town she's, right now. she talks about how she has basically seen everything that's been going on. Yeah, which is kind of bonkers. Um, she, like, yeah, she's getting some sort of powerful feedback from, you know, her crazy negativity aura type thing, um, which, you know, if she's getting feedback, like we've talked about, you know, explains why she's getting so powerful. Yeah, she seems really powerful. Um, Blake and Molly basically make a deal, uh, that they're gonna team up and Blake kind of helps her realize that the only 
person who's vulnerable is Sandra. Um, the Bahames kind of know Blake's MO a bit too much, and Johannes is kind of untouchable. Um, so it has to be Sandra and Jeremy. Uh, so Molly's going to do a big distraction attack, and Blake will sneak in and, and give them the old hyena one too. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, this is sort of, this conversation is where we start to understand where Blake is at now, because he is kind of dictating the terms to Molly. So you kind of get to see where he's starting to land on his crisis of conscience earlier in the chapter. Um, And it seems to basically be he and Molly are are both on team burn it all down. Like, let's just fuck shit up. Mm. Uh, It's just Blake is a bit more focused on using the burning it down to, you know, you know, put the put the spinner in the position where he can nudge it in the right direction and build it back up. Um, so he's just kind of trying to direct Molly now. Like, you know, this is this is where he's at yep. now. Is he he's okay with using this negativity force? Uh, he's just wants to direct it in the or point it in the right direction. Yeah, which is I don't know, not a not a bad strategy. Use the no. powerful tools to burn down the system. I mean, it feels like a bit of a. It feels analogous to diabolism in a way, though, doesn't it? Like, yeah, but it's not. It's not. I mean, as far as we know, it's not leaving behind any permanent demon radiation. You know, it's not making moats or anything like that. I wouldn't put anything past Molly right now. Yeah, fair. (laughs) That's fair. Um, It does. If I had to critique it, I would say it reminds me of um, the burn down the house while you're still inside it plan a little bit. Um, like, using Molly to, to do all this, you know, attacking. I, I just don't... I don't think Molly will be discriminated enough to not uh, not just fuck over Blake and the Thorburns and the Cabal while she's at it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, like, recency bias, but for me, it just kind of reminds me of what Rose Senior was sort of talking about with these spinning tops. It's just without any of the care that she talked about. Like, she was... She's trying to be careful, Risk Blake's just like, let's just fucking, you know, throw bombs on this spinning top until it's nudgeable. <laughs> <sighs> what a great plan. Um, so Molly also says something interesting here where she they touch on the idea of where Molly's power comes from. And she basically says, uh, I think I'm becoming a god. And they, <laughs> they have a little conversation about this and then move on. And it's like what the fuck? Like, this is crazy. I don't, like, and I kind of believe it, right? Like, she's clearly becoming omniscient in Jacob's Bell. She seems to be becoming the god of Jacob's Bell. Yeah, or, you know, if if we sort of look at the the more traditional uh, pantheons, like, I don't know if I'm just thinking, like, you know, Greek or Roman gods or uh, Norse, it was often gods of a concept. Like, she'd almost be, like, the god of resentment Neg- and negativity. The God of negativity yeah, yeah. <laughs> what uh, a title i mean you know as green eyes mentions you know most gods are apparently miserable um green eyes is apparently a lot more well-traveled than i realized uh who knows what she meant while she was down in the abyss <laughs> having said that though i think everything in the abyss was miserable yeah so it's not a strong point. that's what i was thinking as well i was like mm, i don't know i don't know if that's the best measure um but yeah, anyway, no, I mean, I agree. It could be, I mean, it doesn't feel to me like Molly's becoming a god, but I guess I don't know enough about how gods form. Um, I certainly, you know, I, I compare it maybe more to an incarnation or something, but maybe I'm just splitting hairs at that point. You know, this is the world of Pact. The the line doesn't necessarily have to be distinct. Uh, so yeah. who, who knows exactly what she's turning into, but I agree. It seems really fucking powerful. And if it's like, you know, if she is becoming some sort of embodiment of, Something like negativity. I mean, of course, in Jacob's Bell, that's going to fucking 
get out of control real fast. There's a lot to feed on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Blake heads off to prepare to attack uh, Santa and Jeremy, and uh, on the way decides to top himself up with a few bones. They look for some corpses, uh, which they eventually find, and Blake eats their bones. Yum yum. Yeah. Apparently we're doing that now. <laughs> yeah, um. right? Like, <laughs> I, on the one hand, I'm kind of glad that he's not feeding off of fear, but this is not better. Um, he well, goes straight to the source, right? He does find already dead things, um, so mm. feels a little bit better, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I mean, what I do like is this is one of the first times in the story, I think, where we've seen Blake kind of go out of his way to sort of top himself up that isn't in a shit way like Glamour. Um, Do you remember that time he was like, I need to hang out with my friends. That will refresh me. That was so long ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now it's just eat some bones, <laughs> drink some blood of your friends and eat some fucking bones. Uh, yeah. I mean, what scares me about this is arcs like 11 and 12 were so defined by uh, Blake developing his sympathetic magic thing and like defining it as his MO as a boogeyman. Mm. And now he's kind of completely changed the status quo of him as a boogeyman by getting out, out of the mirrors. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's so while I like the idea that he's shoring himself up rather than throwing things away more and more, I'm worried about like the precedent we're starting to set here of Blake being someone who scavenges bones from others. Like, that's not mm. a good image. Yeah. I wonder, like, we've talked about the flesh that he has left being his humanity. Do you think this is maybe a good sign? Like, if he shores himself up with human bones, he's gaining at least somewhat some humanity or is that ridiculous <laughs> yeah i just I, I can't see it being that that just seems too good or it contradicts too much with the idea of the imagery of like grave robbing for yeah you're right other dead people's bones like if if anything to me it sort of implies that you're going to be ish like furthering an image of you as uh like a bastardization of humanity or something you know yeah like he's He's taking the dead scraps of humanity. Yeah, that's true. It's probably not reaffirming things that we want to be reaffirmed, right? No, I, I can't imagine it is. It's, it's it's too horrible an image to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also like the idea of this telescope couple that they find. Like, it's just, they were pecked to death, and it's just, it, it, it leaves so many questions. <laughs> like, they were pecked to death while doing astrology. Were they practitioners or just, like, chilling out here and they were casualties, like... It's very in enticing. Yeah, it's a fun little sort of background set piece. Like, uh, you, you know, I, I, a bit of a weird tangent, I think. But, like, you know, you get lots of video games that do this. Like, uh, Bioshock was a classic one where they just sort of be rooms off to the side of the main path with a kind of backstory that you can piece yeah. together just by observing the rooms. Um, and, it, yeah, like, this feels like a bit of an example of that. Like, we're just given some contextual clues and left with some gaps that we have to fill in um i mean we don't get word on how fresh these corpses are weirdly <laughs> I, I hope they are very fresh i mean he has to strip the flesh off of them with the hyena right oh yeah i mean i, I doubt they're like months old but, yeah um you know like i'm talking about you know hopefully they're within the last hour as opposed to the last like 24 or 48 mm. um mm. I, like, I don't know, it seems better to me that they're casualties of the current chaos than just, like, 48 hours ago there was a minor skirmish and everyone was okay with just leaving their corpses up on the roof for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it wasn't that. Um, there's also some creepy birds up here that I like because Green Eyes just starts munching down on them, so they, both, like, they, just, they just piss off. They're like, no. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
so I like the idea that they could be not just normal birds, or they could just be normal birds that got suitably freaked out by green eyes. I'm not quite yeah. sure. I think Blake attributes the looks they give to just a bit too human. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can believe that they were the Briar girls. Uh, she seems all about that sort of scavenging from the dead stuff. That's where Blake got his, like, you know, original set of uh, bones. Yeah. Or even some kind of uh, Corvidae spawn, maybe. <laughs> yeah, this is what he's getting up to. He's making some young Corvidae's. Because, fuck, we haven't seen him, have we? God knows what he's up Not to. Not since he days. walked off with the with the hair, right? Yeah, that was that was 11.x, I think. He's been doing mm-hmm. fuck knows what for the last arc and a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Who could ever tell? Um, yeah. So, uh, Blake basically watches Molly attack the Duchamps. Molly does this big negativity blast, and it seems to do... Like, it, it, it it's a strong attack, but doesn't seem to do much. Um, and Blake basically immediate reala- immediately realises, this plan is just not going to work, and he, he legs it to go do something else. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's such a crazy moment like i love the the you feel how intense it is because blake like braces himself for it and it still hits him so much harder than yeah. when molly actually hit him uh yeah and sandra and jeremy are barely faced like i keep forgetting how strong these two seem to be yeah uh and then yeah and then i love the moment blake just sort of starts running and you're like wait what the fuck and he's yeah. like don't worry i'm attacking them from another angle or something <laughs> Which I, you know, I'm sure Molly is going to be like 100% fine with it. She's not going to see this as another huge betrayal by Blake. The fact that he just fucked off and left her while she was attacking. I mean, I guess we've got to count on her omniscience here because uh, he does explain it to Green Eyes and Evan, so hopefully she overheard. Yeah. Yeah, she seems reasonable. I'm sure she'll understand. We've got to hope that she's uh, eavesdropping and willing to give him the benefit of a doubt. Yeah. We'll see, I suppose. Um,. And that's the end of Execution 13.2. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, what do you think uh, Blake's um, Blake's other angle is? I, I have no idea. Um, I was trying to think of it. Like, the only thing I can sort of think of is if he's going for someone or something less protected, which has me worried that he's just planning on attacking the Junior Council now, um, <laughs> which is like a concerning thought that I, I don't think he's thinking like that anymore. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I have absolutely no idea what he's planning. I can't wait to find out. Yeah, I mean, I guess we will find out. Mm. Yeah. Uh, something that just jumped into my head, though, before we before we bounce out. Wait, talking about Corvidae, I, I just, I'd forgotten about that loose thread. Um, I'm wondering, <laughs> like, I talked about how I thought Barbatorum was going to get out because of something the group did. Now I'm wondering, like, if it's going to be Corvidae, like, if summoning Corvidae is going to be what? Let but what lets Barbatorum out? I want to change my prediction to it being Corvidae. I reckon that's even better. Okay. Um, if he fucks with the um, uh, sorry, like maybe he could just fuck with the uh, like Rose's uh, failsafe or something, and Barb's is just going to get out. I mean, I don't feel like it'd be that hard for Corvidae to um to s- change the way the fire burned a little bit, so that instead of burning nice and safely, it just went, you know, five centimetres to the right and accidentally let out Barbatorum. Yeah, I feel like there's... Ever since the house has sort of been smashed by, like, Jeremy, it feels like there's a number of small things someone could do to maybe let Barbatorum out, and Corvidae is probably the kind of arsehole who will. <laughs> just stop by Mara's place and be like, hey, quick quick advice, get yeah, the fuck guess out. What? Yeah, what, um, yeah. We're going. Yeah, off on um, off on another honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see, right? We'll see. We'll see what he gets up to. 
Um, now, before we wrap up, uh, a quick reminder, we have a discussion question that's running at the moment. That discussion question is uh, musing on whether Rose actually has the heart and soul and inviting you all to muse with us. Um, so make sure you leave your answers to that in the discussion thread. And uh, we also thought we would do a little bit of a monster corner here. Now, we haven't had any new monsters in a little while, although we did have the uh, the hook man today. <laughs> um, but I wanted to <laughs> revisit a, an idea that I had a while ago that we never really got a chance to dive into. Um, back when, well, this feels like ages ago now, but back on the siege on the house, when um, when we had the, uh, the this was what, in Arc 12, I think? No, 11? Um, is this the paper girl that we're talking yes, about? Yes, the paper girl. Who I had think the... that was towards the end. Oh, no, that was towards the midpoint of Arc 11, I yeah. reckon. Um, late late mid-11. This paper girl who had this human flesh-bound book. I wanted to dive into the idea of, um, of human skin-bound books. Uh, so if you don't want to hear those words many times, then uh, bounce <laughs> now. <laughs> um, if you're still here, though... Uh, Let's get into it, I guess. Um, so there's a word for this, of the practice of binding books in human skin, or a term for it, and that term is anthropodermic bibliopegy, um, which, you know, it's something is prevalent <laughs> when it has its own term, right? Yeah, well, because th this was like a big thing in like the Middle Ages. Right? Yeah, I, it really seemed to have been done a lot in the 17th and, or maybe 18th, 19th century. Okay, that's more recent than I thought. Yeah, it, yeah, it's surprisingly recent, honestly. Um, a lot of these famous examples, like, still exist today. There's something like maybe 40 known and verified, because they've been kind of chemically verifying these for the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, there's something like 40 of these known books that still exist that have been verified to be bound with human skin, which is fun. Um, uh, I, I, so there, obviously this is something that exists in fiction as well. And we kind of got onto it from the, the, the paper girl. And, and obviously I think one of the most famous examples in, in my mind is the Necronomicon from the HP Lovecraft stories. And then from a lot of stuff after that. Um, and, and this kind of starts a theme that is going to exist throughout this monster corner where. A lot of these books are bound in the flesh of their own authors. <laughs> like, their authors would write a book and then be like, you know what this book needs for a little pizzazz? To be bound in my own skin. And they would just do it. They say you put a bit of yourself in every story you write, but these guys <laughs> might have been taking it a bit too literally. Yes, I think they uh, misunderstood that, um, <laughs> that, that, that phrase. Um, so an example I really like is uh, this book called The Highwayman. Narrative of the Life of James Allen, alias George Walton. So, long title. Um, this was an autobiography of, of a guy called James Allen, who was a highwayman, who was a, you know, a, a, a robber. Um, and uh, this book was basically made from his confessions. He confessed to a lot of his crimes in prison uh, when he was on his deathbed, kind of confessing to the warden of the prison who wrote them all down. Um, and after he had finished confessing, he specifically asked for a copy to be made out of his own skin and sent to somebody that uh, he really respected because he tried to rob him once. And this guy was so brave <laughs> that he ended up coming away with like a really big, uh, big respect for him. Um, and then the warden actually did this, which again is, is a twist. Um, so yeah, this book still exists. Um, it's one of the most uh, well-known real examples of, of a... Uh, sorry, what's the term? Anthropodermic bibliopegy of, of one of these books, right? Um, that's such like that. See, that's one of those stories where if you put that in a book, 
I'd be like, no, this is too unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> awesome. Nobody um, so, would do this. Yeah. I wanted to touch on some more of the reasons why this was actually done. So one was uh, to kind of spice up your own book, uh, like the one with James <laughs> Allen. Just kind of like, I guess as a way of like signifying the importance of the story or kind of, it was done with, uh, with, with, with uh, autobiographies because it's kind of like, I don't know, like, it feels like a cool thing to do, I guess. Like, here's my life, and it's bound in me. <laughs> you know, like, it feels symbolic. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this is like the hardcore version of, you know, you know how, like, when you can pre-order a video game and you get the Steelbook edition? Yeah. It's the hardcore mode of that. Yeah, it's like the signed, uh, it's like a, a level up of a signed copy. It's signed yeah. in the skin of the <laughs> author. Um, the other main reason that was done was as a punishment. Um, and so... Basically, criminals uh, would would be punished by having the records of their crimes bound in their own skin. Uh, if they're what? lucky, they would be dead. If they're unlucky, they would be flayed and it would be done while they were alive, which is uh, pretty hideous. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. There, there was this act from, from, from you know, old England, uh, this act called the Murder Act, which meant that if you'd done a heinous crime, like murdering somebody, you would get uh, basically dissected in public posthumously. Um, and after this, uh, a lot of times your skin would be basically turned into stuff like wallets or books. And so that's where a fair amount of these came from as well, um, which is a bizarre punishment. But there you go. <laughs> um, there also are some examples of it being a, like a fetishy thing. Uh, so like... There was one doctor that wrote a book on female reproductive systems and bound it in the skin of an unknown woman. And apparently it was a bit of a, like a fetish thing for this guy to have this book. And he was very proud of it and showed it off to everybody, which is again, pretty fucking disgusting. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a disgusting uh, tradition, but I do like that there were these authors that were just kind of like, and not all of them were criminals. Some of them were just a bit wacky and <laughs> we're kind of like yeah i'm just gonna yeah. bind this book in my own skin you know what like i'm i'm not gonna lie the the guy who on his deathbed was sort of like hey bind a copy of this book in my skin yeah i can't i could get behind that like i reckon that'd be cool like you know if if when i die he bound a copy of like a book i wrote in my skin i reckon that's pretty legit well go to officeworks and see if they'll do it for you <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um you need to find an officeworks that's next to a morgue though that's the condition <laughs> um yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it i just fucking weird tradition that seems to have just (laughs) i don't like it's such a it's such a pointless thing to do in my opinion (laughs) like i don't know why anyone would do it either to someone else or to themselves but it seems to have somehow still be an enduring thing that just people kept doing so well yeah i mean something something that you know has been a thing throughout history and and you know is also a thing in pact because of that is is this this idea that like you know giving your own flesh really adds a level of importance to something like you know you can only bind so many books in your own skin it really yeah. sort of it's putting putting your weight behind it yeah um yeah, you know because you, you you could have used that skin to make a deal with barbatorum to get like 30 more years of life or something yeah um and just smell bad stuff was that the deal or something like that yeah anyway. or <laughs> or you'd get like um blades that never dull whatever yeah um, something like that but yeah that's a little bit of history on anthropodermic bibliopegy so uh that was uh fun i guess um <laughs> if you want to leave your favorite examples of uh human skin bound books the place to do that 
I guess, if there ever was a place to do it, is <laughs> in our discussion thread, which you can find linked in the episode description. A place not to do that, but to hit us up about other things would be our Twitter account, which is yeah. at MediaMD Podcast. Uh, we accept all sorts of tweets that have nothing to do with human skin uh, yeah. being separated from human bodies. Yes. Um, if you if you really like uh, this show and you want to put a bit of your skin in the game, so to speak, why not review us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, where you can um, help us help us out by spreading the love and uh, helping other people find the show. Mm. Uh, if you're sick of skin talk, uh, you can head on over to doofmedia.com where, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, shows that have less flaying involved. Man, actually, you know what? That's a good point. Yeah. This is a skin-heavy book. <laughs> Imagine all the books you could have made out of, um, like, that Duchamp woman Green Eyes had a crack at a few chapters yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, Get half a library out of her. Yeah, we won't be upset if you want to go check out some of the other great shows on the Doof Media Network. We have thick skin, <laughs> after all. Um, so check Jesus. out shows like <laughs> We've Got Ward <laughs> or Do the Right Thing. Um, there are a bunch of great shows on the Doof Media Network. Yeah, I think uh, the the newest episode of We've Got Ward's coming out right at the same time as this. And in fact, they will probably be mentioning, and we should mention too, uh, the Parahumans costume contest. The, the votes are now open. Uh, so that's for all our patrons. So yes. anyone who's patroned from even a dollar up uh, has the ability to check out the all the costumes that were submitted and, you know, see which one you like the most and give it the, the tick of approval. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I've, I just looked at them uh, this morning and my God, these costumes are great. Like all of them are exceptional. It was very hard for me to choose one, but I did cast my vote and I'm excited to see who ends up winning. Yeah, I, I agree. I found it actually really hard to decide. Uh, there were like about three or four that I was like, I really, really love this one. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, check it out. That's patreon.com forward slash doofmedia if you are interested in joining us to, you know, vote on these costumes and you get a bunch of other perks. Uh, we've talked about them a lot, so I won't repeat it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, if you really like Wildbo's stories and you want to put a little more skin in the game, then head to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wildbo, and you can help support him um, for creating these horrifying skin themed stories. And just just to be clear, Wildbo only accepts cash payments. You, yes. you can't donate skin to him. Well, uh, as far as I'm aware, yeah. we, we haven't actually asked him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume the answer is no, uh, but, you know, we can't be certain. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of our show. Uh, if you, I mean, I understand why you wouldn't want to come back, but if you do want to come <laughs> back for our next episode, <laughs> we'll be talking about execution 13.3 on Friday, the 8th of November. So we will see you then. See ya. See ya.